titled the message today, Extravagance. And I believe that what we are working through this passage today is a story of obvious contrasts. And I'll explain that as we get into the middle of this. But this passage starts out by saying, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things. Now, some of you will look back in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and you'll see him teaching an awful lot of things. And scholars will call that section of Scripture the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples about sort of the end times and kind of how to look around the end and, and kind of notice some things that maybe they weren't going to notice otherwise. But most scholars believe that that phrase, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, is not just related to the Olivet Discourse, but all of Jesus' teaching. And so in some ways, this is kind of like Jesus' teaching ministry is done. And it makes some sense because we're a couple of days away from the crucifixion. We're a couple of days away from the Passion Week, right? This process uh, that Jesus will ultimately be killed, crucified, and we know that story. We'll get there eventually, right? So, Jesus' teaching ministry is done. And Matthew gives us this interesting account. Notice verses 3 through 13, or 6 through 13, the ones that Wes read, is a, it's a story set in the middle of two contrasting other stories. We have the chief priests and the leaders of the church gathering in secret, plotting to kill. And then we have this woman who extends this extravagant gift of love. We have the disciples who've been told multiple times Jesus is going to be handed over to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And they've done nothing to prepare him for that journey. And yet we have this one woman who pours out this expensive perfume on his feet. And Jesus says, this is part of the preparation for my burial. We have this contrast of 30 pieces of silver against this extravagant gift of perfume, potentially this family heirloom that is worth maybe a year's wages. Now, students, some of you, of the Old Testament would recognize that a 30 pieces of silver is a reference to something in the Old Testament. Exodus 21.32 says this, If a bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. So there's a reference right there. 30 pieces of silver. 30 shekels of silver. And we wouldn't want to gloss over the prophetic overtones that are alluded to here as well. And Zechariah Zechariah is a minor prophet in the end of the Old Testament. And it says this in chapter 11. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. 
Now, at the time, they wouldn't have known that that necessarily related to Judas or to Jesus, but after Jesus had come, the early church began to recognize some of these prophetic stories and how they were being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And so we can read into that now with Jesus having come and been present on the earth. This story, this story of contrasts, it's fascinating and it's interesting. I want to give you some background. So if you're with me, if you open up your Bibles and you're in Matthew chapter 26, let's just walk through this a little bit together. This story that we read in 26, kind of 1 through 15 there, um, is a story that's also found in Mark, and it's a story that's found in John. Now, some of you might actually be thinking, and you Bible quizzers, you might be thinking this because you've memorized much of Luke, you'll actually recognize it as also potentially coming from Luke, Luke chapter 7. But the reality is that that is a different story. That is not the same story as the one found here in Matthew, Mark, and John. In fact, the one in Luke chapter 7 is in a whole different region. It's up in Galilee. This is down in Judea. And some of the players are different, even though the story is quite similar. So maybe, maybe Luke was drawing a little bit upon the story that he had already heard about, but it's definitely a different story. So just to kind of make that point for you. Matthew here, working on the assumption that Matthew is actually writing this story based upon what Mark had already written down, And you could have a fun and healthy debate about whether Mark was written first or Matthew was written first. But even though Mark appears second in our New Testament, a lot of scholars actually believe that Mark was actually written first and Matthew was written afterwards. But based upon that fact, we have a story here in Matthew that actually we would call a redaction. That is something that Matthew picked up from Mark and he wrote it and put it in his own words. And he reduced the number of words. There's actually 109 words in Matthew's account versus 124 in Mark's account in the original language. So he took some things out. What what kind of things did he take out? It says that in Mark, for instance, um, he says that the perfume was made of pure nard. For some reason, Matthew thought that was an extraneous detail. He He didn't include that particular piece. Matthew says that she broke the jar. Or he doesn't say that she broke the jar. Mark says that she broke the jar. But that's, for Matthew, some kind of an extraneous detail. We don't know exactly why. Matthew seems to care that it was the disciples that were reacting to what was going on, whereas Mark just mentions them more generically. He says, some who were present. So, it's interesting. Matthew doesn't add in that some rebuked her harshly. Just some kind of differences in the two accounts between Matthew and Mark. And here's a couple of more. In Matthew, we just read, it says that Passover was two days away. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Because it, when they throw this particular story in, it's almost as if they're reflecting. It says, Passover is two days away, and the chief priests and the teacher of the law, they they started to gather and they started to plot and conspire how they would take down Jesus. They didn't want to do it publicly and all that sort of thing, right? They they didn't want to be accused of certain things. So they gather together, and Passover is two days away. But then it's like Matthew sort of inserts, and Mark sort of inserts this remembrance, this beautiful story. And all we can guess is that it is 
kind of in obedience to Jesus who said, I don't want anybody to forget what this woman has done for me. And so they insert it. If you actually were to read this story and go from verse 5 and skip 6 through 13 and go right to 14, go 5 to 14, you would actually get the flow of what's happening chronologically. This particular story doesn't fit chronologically. And why is that important? Why am I telling you that extraneous detail? Because in John it says it was six days before. And so scholars have tried to reconcile. Was it two days? Was it six days? Are they different? How do we harmonize that? And going all the way back to Augustine in the 4th century, people have, tried, have made the case that this story in Mark and Matthew was not in chronological order, but was simply inserted as a memory device to draw our attention back to what Mary had done. In fact, it probably did take place a few days before what Matthew was writing here in terms of it's two days before Passover. So, do that. I just think that's an interesting part of understanding this particular story. Let's look at a couple of other interesting facts in this particular story. Matthew and Mark don't identify Judas, but John does, over in John chapter 12. And John also adds that Judas had a bit of a penchant for dipping his hand into the treasury and taking out whatever he wanted to take out. So people would give money, and Judas would collect it. He was kind of the treasurer, and then he'd kind of help himself to a little bit on the side. Like, that's, that's important to this particular story. Not sure why Matthew and Mark didn't include it. Here's an interesting fact for some of you that like to play around with words. The word for leper, it says this was happening in the home of Simon the leper. Now, the interesting thing is that the word for leper could have been mistranslated. Because the word in Aramaic only uses consonants. And you have to actually add in or infer the vowels, the the syllables that kind of make out the word. And the consonants are the same for the word leper and jar merchant. So was it mistranslated as Simon the leper? Or was this a wealthy businessman who was hosting a party? And invited Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the disciples because of what had happened to Lazarus. Now, remember, if you just go back a couple of pages, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. That is reason enough to celebrate, wouldn't it be? So, does the story change, though? I mean, if if this was Simon the leper, was he healed from Jesus, and was that the reason, and and now we're invited? I don't know that it changes anything about the significance, because the story doesn't hinge on Simon the leper. We know very little about him. The story hinges on Jesus Christ and what he meant to the people who were there. The jar of perfume. The jar of perfume was potentially, likely, a family heirloom. Very valuable, as the disciples note, but a family heirloom, something that was very special. And it made me think, like, okay, so Mary takes this family heirloom. Again, contextually, might make sense. Like, Lazarus has come back from the dead. If there is ever a time to celebrate, this is a time to celebrate, wouldn't you say? Like, this is a time to celebrate. So, but were Martha and Lazarus in on this? Like, this is a family heirloom. Like, where are they in the story, right? Did Mary do this on her own, or did they discuss this and say, you know what, I, I think we should use this? On, like, I doubt it, right? So, so it's just an interesting twist on the particular story. 
Here's another interesting fact when you try to compare all of these stories. It says in some accounts that it was poured out on his feet. It says in other accounts that it was, in Matthew's account, for instance, it was poured out on his head. Is there a problem between the scriptures there? Not, not really. All right, so it can be both, right? It could be poured out on the head and the feet. It could have been poured out at different times. It could have been poured out in different ways. But it's not so much that we can prove that one was right, one was wrong, and that's not really the, the point here. But I, I do think there is something interesting happening in Matthew's account. Matthew is very concerned with proving to his Jewish counterparts that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but he was the king. He was this chosen king of Israel. And so this reference in Matthew to the perfume being poured out on the head would have conjured up for his readers this idea of anointing the king. The perfume was made of myrrh. The perfume was a burial spice. And so what is Matthew trying to get us to see? That Jesus is the promised messianic king whose throne was the cross. I think that that is a significantly important piece to Matthew's perspective on this particular story. We could spend a lot of time studying these particular accounts and studying the scriptures here, and I think it's fun. Hopefully that whets your appetite a little bit. You can go study these a little bit more on your own, but let's bring it back to today. Kind of, When we think about defining moments, when we think about what is it about this particular passage that is unique in our series, in the defining moment, I think that the issue for us comes back to this idea of recognition. I think it comes back to the idea of priority. Who is Jesus? And if Jesus is who he says he is, how are we to be interacting and responding to him as a result? Let's talk about the disciples' reaction to this pouring out of the perfume for just a couple of minutes. During the lead-up to Passover, this particular journey where pilgrims would make this journey into Jerusalem and they would do all this work and, and kind of prepare for the Passover, it was common to give away things. They called it almsgiving or giving to the poor. There was this heightened sense that we need to help those who are less fortunate than us. And that would have been a very common cultural thing, but also very much a part of the religious practice leading up to Passover. And so their senses are already heightened to this need to give more, to give away. I want you to think about that for a minute, because if you put it in that context, sometimes we read and we're a little bit harsh on the disciples. How could they jump on Mary for doing this, right? But they were, they were doing what they knew to do. They were thinking the way they had been taught. They were thinking about what was right in this particular case. Their indignation towards Mary was actually something quite noble. Think how many people could have been served by this jar of perfume. And it's 
gone. And it just got me thinking about how common that is still in the church. In our day and age, in every church, every church ever since, right? This, this concept of noble indignation in the name of religion, in the name of Jesus Christ. We look around ourselves and we, we look and we say, they're not dressed right. Or look at the car they're driving. Look at where they live. Or look at how they live. Or think about all the questions that go through our minds. Whether explicitly we put that out there for you or implicitly. We're just thinking it. And it affects the way we interact with you. We in the church, we carry quite a bit of religiously motivated indignation. And that's something to really think about in this particular story. Because it would be nice to just be upset at the disciples. It would be nice to kind of point a finger and say how poorly they reacted to this extravagant gift of worship and love. And yet quietly, we may be holding on to things in our own hearts and in our own lives that cause us to look down our noses at the way other people are worshiping. Our heart's treasure is revealed by how much value we place on people or things. Jesus, if you go back a few pages in the scripture here in Matthew, Jesus has already taught us a little bit about this, hasn't he? It says in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That sounds familiar, right? We've, we've worked through that, the Sermon on the Mount. God wants what? Some of you don't remember. God wants our hearts, right? Some of you remember that from last year? God wants our hearts. But I want you to notice here. I want you to notice in this particular interaction that Jesus doesn't discount the need to give to the poor. He doesn't discount that need. It's still important. He says you're going to have them forever. And that's still a very good thing, but this moment, this is a different moment, and I want you to recognize it's different because sometimes in our worship, sometimes in the way we express ourselves, sometimes in the way we work for God, we miss the point and the object of our worship. We get caught up in doing things for the Lord. We get caught up in doing things the right way for the Lord. And we miss the person of Jesus Christ, the person to whom we are directing our worship. We get lost in our practices. We get lost in the, the ways that things are supposed to be. or the We get lost and it's like we lose sight of Jesus. Jesus challenged John's disciples a little bit earlier in Scripture as well when they said, you know, why aren't your disciples fasting? And he's like, because I'm here. They're going to be able to fast when I'm not here, but I'm here right now. Why would they fast now? Because I'm here. This is, we're together in this journey. Again, reorienting, refocusing. Who am I? Jesus says, who am I? 
Remember that? That question to Peter a couple weeks ago? Who do you say I am? I think that the point is that Jesus says, don't miss me. I'm the object of your affection and your worship. Don't miss me. I'm the one that you need to focus on. All the ritual and all the ceremony, the almsgiving, the giving to the poor, all of that stuff, all the requirements of the law that you're following, they point to me. Not me personally, they point to Jesus, right? Mary sees me. Mary sees me. And I am going to honor that. See, the disciples couldn't see their own blindness. It got me to thinking a little bit about my own journey, right? Like, my own blinders. I've been in a few board meetings in my life, right? And how many times have I, as the treasurer, been talking to the program directors, and I just like, we don't have enough money. And the programmer's like, but we got to do this. And I'm like, we don't have enough money. And they're like, we got to do this, right? And we just kind of start talking past each other. It's a little bit kind of like that. Or, or how about the visionary leader? The visionary leader who, who's trying to have a discussion with somebody who's very traditional, the traditionalist. Don't, no, not, not seeing it. Not seeing it, right? Or how about that imaginative child that is talking to that overworked parent? That parent that just can't quite see it in the moment. And that child that's just dreaming so big and they're playing, they got their imaginary friends and they're just like, play with me. The creative types versus the nuts and bolts types. Sometimes we're just on different planes, aren't we? Sometimes we're just not able to see our own blinders. Sometimes I can't even see what I'm missing. And for you program directors and creative types and visionary leaders out there, I just have to say I'm sorry. I just have to say it. Practicality, frugalness, A focus on conservation, it all tends to win the day for some folks. And if you can look better by putting some Christianese on it, even better, right? Because I'm going to be practical and frugal and I'm going to conserve because I want to help somebody. I want to help the poor. But sometimes, and this is where Judas kind of comes into play, sometimes that veneer of good motives gets to conceal what's really down in our hearts. Sometimes what passes for frugal, frugal being spending very, very little, trying to get away with spending very, very little, sometimes what passes for frugal actually conceals stingy. Sometimes what passes as very practical conceals fear. Sometimes what passes as conservation is actually just an unwillingness to celebrate and honor those who are truly worthy. In this case, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think in this particular passage, I don't think all the motives of all the disciples were were terrible. In fact, when I studied this a little bit, I, I could see maybe where 
for Judas, this particular story of being at this home of Simon and seeing this act of love, it might have been the final straw for him. It might have been like, I've, I've had enough. This Jesus, this talk of death, this, this impending crucifixion, that's not what I signed up for. I thought you were going to overthrow Rome. I thought you were going to... And you know what? I don't see where this is heading, and I don't understand death, and I don't understand... And you know what? I'm going to get out while I can. And if I can get out with some money in my pocket, I'm going to do it. Because it doesn't make sense to me. And I could see where Judas has just kind of flipped over the edge with this particular encounter. That doesn't make it right. Makes it still wrong. It just I don't know that every one of the disciples was in the wrong. I'm just saying for Judas, what was going on? What was going on in his heart? Because sometimes I think it can feel like Judas is a little bit far removed from where I am. And I think sometimes we can actually deceive ourselves. That we're trying to walk this Christian faith in a very safe way. We're not trying to extend ourselves. We're not trying to put ourselves out there too much. And we have a certain idea of what Jesus is supposed to be. What He's supposed to do for me and my family and, and my community. We have certain ideals and we, and we don't want to put ourselves out there too far because we're just not quite sure. And when it doesn't look like it's going the right way, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull back a little bit. easy. It's easy to point the finger at Judas. Is that another blind spot? Is that another blinder in our own hearts and in our own lives? I want you to think for a minute. Back to the question that I started today with. Think for a minute of that valuable thing or what might seem extravagant to you in relation to the church and to worship. What seems extravagant to you? Is it a service, maybe, that goes a little longer than you thought it should? Is that extravagant? Is it people who dance in church? Like, that's just a little bit too extravagant. Have you been in a church where they wave flags? Does that feel a little extravagant to some people? Not to some, right? Some of you hold back from giving all in worship. Some of you hold back from giving all in tithes and offerings. Some of you hold back from giving all in your talents and your abilities because you're just a little bit arm's length in your relationship with Christ. And as you think about that this morning, I just want you to think, what, is, what might God be saying to me about that? Do I have a family heirloom? Do I have an investment? Do I have a savings account? Do I have something that, you know what, God, I'll give you everything, but I'm holding on to that because I need my out. I need my protection. I need my future. I need my retirement. I need all of that because, well, that's just good stewardship. I'm not knocking good stewardship until God taps you on the shoulder and says, I want that because it reflects your heart and you hold on to it and you don't let it go. Are you being generous toward God? Nothing is wasted and nothing is forgotten. What do we learn from this story? 
We learn that Jesus is worth everything that we offer to him. He recognizes our sacrifices. He's not going to forget. Let me bring this home by looking for a minute at Mary. Let's look at this woman who pours out this jar of perfume. John identifies her. Matthew and Mark don't seem to identify her. But John says that she is Mary of Bethany. She is the sister of Lazarus and Martha. We've met her two other times in the scriptures. Those two times and this particular time, I think, are quite profound. In that every time we meet Mary, she's at Jesus' The first time you might recall, Jesus comes and visits the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary finds herself at Jesus' feet. He's teaching, he's talking, and she's just there, soaking it up. And Martha, you might recall, she's like, Jesus, look at Mary. She's supposed to be helping me. Look, all this stuff is going on. I need to get all this stuff done. And Jesus is like, no, she's good. Let her be. She's at Jesus' feet. The next time we meet Mary, you might recall, is a few days before this particular occurrence. She's grieving. Lazarus, her brother, has died. And she is grieving. And if you've ever been in a position where somebody has died and you are grieving, you know the questions that run through your mind, the the why questions. And you can imagine the why questions running through Mary's mind. Like, Jesus, if you were who you said you were and you had just showed up in time, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And why? And her grieving. And she runs out. And she falls at Jesus' feet. Where were you? the pain she's at Jesus' feet crying weeping and of course we know the end of that story Jesus then raises Lazarus a few days a few weeks before this particular encounter and that helps put this particular encounter in a little bit more perspective Did Mary love Jesus like a father figure? Did she recognize his true divinity? It's probably a mixture of all of that, right? But she loved Jesus. She knew what Jesus was capable of. She had seen Jesus raise her brother from the dead. She was filled with gratitude. She was filled with joy and with love. And she could not help herself. She takes this expensive jar of perfume and she pours it out on Jesus. Extravagant. This jar of perfume worth a a year's wages. So they say. Extravagant. But all the disciples can see is waste. Let's go back to our contrasts for a minute. 
way we started. The contrast, those who were putting Jesus to death were doing it secretly, quietly. They were stingy. They were selfish. They were misguided in their evil intentions. And this story comes along and it contrasts and it says that those who were celebrating Jesus' life, Mary in this particular case, they were in celebration. It was out in the open. They were loving and they were extravagantly generous. Notice the contrasts. Where would we find ourselves in that contrast? Those who were plotting his death were afraid of public backlash. But those who loved Jesus were acting in a way for everyone to see. They didn't care. It didn't matter what anybody said because it flowed from the heart. had nothing to do with what other people said. And finally, this contrast. Mary wasn't one of the inner circle. She wasn't one of the twelve. The twelve weren't doing anything to prepare Jesus for what He kept telling them was coming. But this one woman, not part of the inner circle, does something to prepare Him for what was to come. Now, she didn't know that that's what she was doing. But Jesus makes that link for those who were there. Again, they weren't looking at Mary's gift and love and devotion. They were just looking at the waste of worship. But worship is never wasteful. Amen? Let's say that together. Worship is never wasteful. Can we just say it one more time? Amen. That was just to wake you up a little bit. We're almost done. All right? Hang in there. I'd like to read for you a quote from a guy by the name of John Bloom. He wrote it in a blog called Desiring God. He says this, People, that is the world outside of the church, people watch as we pour our valuable time, our intellects, our money, our youth, our financial futures, and our vocations out at Jesus' feet. They watch them puddle in the bowls of churches, mission fields, orphanages, and homes where children are raised and careers are lost. And they see it as a foolish waste. So expect their rebuke, not their respect. Jesus wants us to waste our lives like Mary wasted our perfume. And by waste, I'm saying in the best of ways, right? To give to Him. For it is no true waste. It is true worship. A poured out life of love for Jesus that counts worldly gain as loss displays how precious He really is. Amen? Last thing I want you to notice. Jesus didn't demand anything from Mary. He didn't ask her to do this. He wasn't even expecting it. Well, maybe he was because he's God, right? But, but in a human sense, he wasn't expecting it. But she was willing to give. He didn't demand it. But she was willing to give the equivalent of everything that she had. And Jesus Acknowledged it. 
He acknowledged it as a beautiful gesture of love. It was a one-time act. It wasn't even a long-term investment in a lot of ways, right? Because some of us, we think that way. Like, oh, I'll, I'll give to this or to that because it might make a difference over the long term. No, this was a one-time act. And but for Jesus telling those who were there never to forget it, it might have actually been forgotten within about two weeks. The perfume, the smell would have dissipated. We wouldn't even know, except for Jesus never forgets. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It flows from our hearts. Jesus, God, is not trying to extract anything from you. Hear that. Jesus is not trying to take anything from you. We, Christians, believers, We are at our best when we are giving to Him from a place of trust in recognition that He is worthy. We don't give to prove our love. Don't put tithes in this offering basket. Don't give to building projects. Don't give to ministries out there to prove how much you love God. That's not the point. We give from a place of love. From a place of devotion. We don't even give to get anything in return. We give because He's given everything for us. Worship team is going to come. And they're going to lead us in a song of response. Many of you will recognize this particular song. But it is a a song to give us some space to respond to what God is saying to you and to us corporately. In just a few minutes, we are going to receive the Lord's Supper together. So this is also a time of preparation, a time of self-examination, a time of looking, a time of listening. Just remember, God notices and remembers. This beautiful, beautiful, extravagant gift that was poured out on Jesus. We are talking about it to this day.